Well, I noticed John back there. Have, have you seen the stuff they gave you yet? I wondered that this looked like puppy chow or something. But it's coffee beans, so I've, uh, I'm, I'm thinking uh, John must be a coffee drinker. Big time. <laughs> well, it's good to see you tonight. I always look forward to coming to Enid and the... It's always the uh, Martin Luther King Day weekend, that weekend. So uh, kind of uh, over the last, I don't know, 15 years, something like that. Uh, that's been my third week of January, and uh, it's been real, uh, <laughs> is that the live stream? <laughs> um, it's, it's, been f- <laughs> it's been fun uh, get, meeting Jonathan and uh, getting to meet his wife, and um, he just has such a energetic personality and uh, he he reminds me uh, his just personality reminds me of Keith from way back in the day but um, so happy to see you all uh, with the new pastor and um, so I'm happy to do Ephesians with you for the next few days and um, so this morning we did 1 15 through 23 and that's part of the part of the opening of the letter so before we dive into um, one, one through fourteen, because that's what we're going to probably, probably that's what we'll get through tonight. Um, let's just think again about the big picture. Now you've got the outline there, and I've got one I think that's just like the one you have. So I just want to make sure I, I ran over it this morning, but you probably didn't have a lot of you didn't weren't looking at this. So I just want you to again to think about how this letter is laid out, how the parts fit together before we start looking at individual pieces. So we're, gonna, we're going to begin tonight with the opening. So if you look at the top of that first page, you've got opening one, one through two. That's where Paul says he will name himself, he'll name Timothy. In six of his letters, he mentions Timothy. Uh, he can add others and the others who were with me, but it's a way of naming the people who are responsible for the writing and sending of the letter, primarily Paul. Then he'll tell who the recipients are. In this case, uh, it's almost certainly to the Ephesians, although as we'll see in a minute, there's a textual variation on that phrase in Ephesus, but but we'll see that in a minute. And then the greeting, grace and peace to you. So that's your typical opening. Mm -hmm. Then in Greek letters, and Paul didn't invent this, this is is Paul adopting letter writing style uh, of his day. There's usually a prayer section, and I show my students when we're talking about Greek letters, uh, it's, it's usually very brief. And even like if a husband's writing to his wife, it'll be like, uh, Fred, uh, to my beloved wife, Artemidora, uh, peace to you. And then usually I pray for your health or something like that. A prayer or thanksgiving section. And then it moves into the body. Usually that moves very quickly in personal letters. In the letters that Paul writes, he adopts the form, but he expands the elements of it. And he'll do that with the opening, and he certainly does that with the Thanksgiving prayer section. So typically, he'll have a nice Thanksgiving. You think about 1 Thessalonians, it's, it's the whole first chapter is a Thanksgiving section. Um, but occasionally, he will include a prayer section, um, not for the congregation, but of praise to God. So it, it is prayer, but it's more like praise to God. And it borrows an Old Testament form uh, called a berachah, which is a blessing. 
And, and some translations will translate it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could just as, easy, as easily translate it, Praise be to God. So when you're look, if you're looking now at uh, this outline, come down from opening to praise and prayer, uh, 1, 3 through 23. So that, that starts with that blessed be the God. So it's praise to God. That's what we're going to do tonight. And then, I guess turn the page, if it's formatted like the one I, I have here. If you turn the page, you see Roman numeral 2, prayer on behalf of the Ephesian believers. You see that? Okay, that was the sermon this morning. So we're not going to come back to that. Then turn again, and you should have, see at the top of a page, or you should see in, in centered body. Okay, we're not going to get to that tonight. We'll do that tomorrow night. But that begins at 2-1. Um, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, that transitions to the main body of the letter, where he starts really reflecting theologically on who we are and what God has done for us in Christ and what are the consequences of all that. And he spends chapters 2 and 3 doing that of the body. The body continues. Look at chapter, uh, turn to, you see a page that says exhortation, 4, 1 through 6, 20. You see that? That's still the body. The body is 2, 1 through 6, 20. But the body is broken up into these two sections, theological reflection and then exhortation. 4, 1 through 6, 20 would be the exhortation. And he does a, he does a very interesting thing with the exhortation section where he's, he's exhorting them. He keeps using a phrase, therefore, walk, five times, starting at 4-1. He'll say, therefore, walk. And that marks off these exhortation sections. Uh, walk in unity, walk in love, walk in the light, uh, walk in the new creation. So we'll get to that in the, near the end of the study. But he's marked it out very clearly so we can follow his organization He's exhorting them now on the basis of who we are and what Christ has done for us, on the basis of his theological reflection, he can say, now you ought to walk like this. And then, to the very end, little conclusion section, 621 through 24, that sort of mirrors the opening, those two verses at the opening. Then you have a very brief conclusion where he mentions who's carrying the letter and another blessing on them. He asks for peace to be upon them and grace. So that's what the letter looks like, six chapters. Um, and when I first thought about doing Ephesians, I thought, wow, we'll really be able to get through that pretty easily. Um, and then I discovered that we could do the whole study on 1, 3 through 14. And um, I, the first one I did in Altus. Uh, I went way too long on that section. Um, so, I mean... I figured my timing out that night. Now i got to move more quickly through that if I'm going to get to the end. Like the last night there on Wednesday night, I had to do like chapters 3 through 6. We're going to do better than that. Um, so let's just turn now to the opening section and uh, look at verses 1 and 2. And this will let us do a little bit of introduction too. So if you want to talk about authorship, recipients, and date... That's really the only three things I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about as an opening. We learn in the first word, Paul. Thirteen letters in the New Testament bear Paul's name. And um, 
for me, there's no, there's no real question or, or reason to get into much of a debate about that or really any debate. However, I will tell you that there are plenty of New Testament scholars who raise questions about Paul's authorship of Ephesians. Now, they're not Southern Baptists. Uh, I don't even think I would consider any of the evangelicals, but, but they do raise questions, and it has to do with the form and style of Ephesians. If, if you take Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, that's four. Nobody questions Paul's authorship of those. In any, uh, evangelical otherwise, the most, the most liberal kinds of, uh, of denominations or scholars don't question those four letters. So a lot of people say, okay, let's just take those four as the sort of agreed upon, no doubt about it, group of Paul's writings. And then you start comparing the other letters to those four. And sometimes people throw in Philippians and 1 Thessalonians as like six that, that hardly anyone questions. What happens is if you compare Ephesians and Colossians to those, that core that I said, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, maybe 1 and 2, or maybe 1 Thessalonians and Philippians, what you find is that Ephesians and Colossians look very different in terms of like sentence structure. I mean, um, there's some long sentences in Greek in Ephesians. This section, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is 202 words, one sentence. Now, now do you know what I'd do to a student's paper if they turned in a 202-word sentence uh, with no break? I'd, I'd say, you need to break this into about seven or eight sentences. And that's what English translations will do to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Because even even the more literal translations want to put it in understandable English. And so they're going to break it up into sentences. But in Greek, it's just one long sentence, 202 words. It's the second longest sentence uh, in the Greek New Testament. Colossians 1 uh, is the longest. And then you look at the, the passage that was the sermon this morning, 15 through 23... That's one sentence in Greek, 170 words. I think it's the third longest sentence. So somebody could say, look, this doesn't look like the way Paul writes. Look how long these sentences are. Vocabulary is another interesting uh, issue. If you take those four that I said at the beginning, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and compare the vocabulary of Ephesians to the vocabulary of those four, there's like 80 words unique or that don't appear in those other four letters. So sentence structure and, and uh, vocabulary, two of the issues that cause people to say, well, it doesn't look like Paul. So they come, so come up with lots of theories, like maybe, maybe a, a disciple of Paul, somebody after Paul's death, wrote Ephesians and Colossians and attached Paul's name um, because it doesn't look like Paul. Well, I got, I got, I got some problems with that. Uh, one, because Paul's name is attached. That's, that's a high hurdle to get over to say, well, I don't think Paul wrote it. Now, there, there's been this speculation that maybe someone would have written it and placed Paul's name on it as an honor to Paul. Like people write uh, a book sometimes and dedicate it to 
uh, maybe the, the teacher or professor that they had who meant a lot to them. But we just don't have any, any record of something like that happening in the ancient world. Furthermore, are there other ways to explain why the sentence structure and vocabulary might look different here than maybe in those four letters that I mentioned earlier? One of the issues is these letters are probably written 60 to 62. That, that would be, that's kind of the agreed upon, more likely, assuming Paul wrote them, that they were written between 60 and 62. Some of those other letters I mentioned, like Galatians, be like 54, um, 1 Corinthians 55. If you threw 1 Thessalonians in there, I'd date that about 50. You're talking about a decade in some instances, definitely five or six years between the writing of those at that I took as my sort of test group and the writing of these prison letters. So what happens over time when the person's traveling and, uh, and, and, you know, doing what Paul was doing? You'd think maybe your vocabulary expands. That's possible. But more importantly, how much does your audience and the reason that you're writing impact things like sentence structure and vocabulary? And I think it's more likely that, that, yes, he writes in longer sentences, and yes, the vocabulary is a, a bit different because he's writing for a different purpose to a different audience. And I, I just, I don't, I, I don't see any reason. I don't see enough evidence to, um, to say Paul didn't write these. So I'm going to assume they're Pauline. I just wanted you to know if you ever took a class, I don't know, OU, OSU, uh, somewhere like that, Wichita State, or somewhere UCO in, uh, in maybe a, a Bible class or a religion class or something, you might be surprised that people are calling these uh, pseudonymous or deuterocanonical. It's something that suggests maybe Paul didn't write them, uh, but you can tell them you believe he did. <laughs> so we, we, get the, we get the sender here that it's Paul, and he refers to himself as apostle, Paul, apostle, which he does in nine of his 13 letters. And uh, I'm, I'm very confident that if you said, Paul, who are you? Now, he might say some other things, but on that short list is going to be apostle. That's how he thought of himself. On the Damascus Road, when he, when he came to realize that Jesus was the Son of God raised from the dead, that's one thing he realized when the light blinded his eyes. The other thing he came to realize over the course of that moment and the next three days was that God had appointed him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That he was basically going to be a church planter missionary to Gentiles. And that's how he understood his calling. And so if you said to me, who are you? On my short list is probably going to be teacher, professor, pretty close, minister, I see it as ministry, what I do in the classroom, but it, it's my calling so wrapped up in my identity, and, and it seems like it was, it was true for Paul. He's going to come back to talking about apostles and prophets on a number of occasions. We'll talk a little bit more about what an apostle is when, that, when we get to some of these other passages. So Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God, he often adds that through the will of God because it's clear that there are questions about his apostleship in the eyes of many, particularly among Israelites who reject Jesus as Messiah. So Paul's viewed as a big liberal, that he's just turned his back on his, uh, on his people. 
to say that these Gentiles can be part of the people of God and without having to be circumcised, without having to take upon themselves the Jewish law. And for a lot of Jews, this was, this was heretical. He was corrupting the true faith. And, uh, and so there were questions about, was he a genuine apostle? And um, he keeps coming back to say, I didn't, I didn't choose myself, and I didn't get this from one of the other apostles, like Peter didn't anoint me to be an apostle. This was by the will of God. And again, it goes back to that Damascus Road experience. So that's your sender. Now, where is Paul when he writes this? I think I mentioned this morning, may have said it tonight. There are four letters in the New Testament that are known as prison letters. And that's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four. And they're called prison letters because the, the widespread uh, agreement is that, that the author was in prison when he wrote them. That Paul was a prisoner at the time of writing. Now he actually says that multiple times in this letter. Look at 3.1. Chapter three, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason, or because of this, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Now, it's possible that he means that in some metaphorical sense, you know? Like you could say, he could say he was a slave of the Lord Jesus. Uh, James uses that, a servant of the Lord Jesus or slave of the Lord Jesus. And he wasn't literally a slave, like a slave in a slave market, but it's a way of picturing his relationship to Christ. But it seems more likely that this is, he's actually a prisoner. Look at 4.1. He says, therefore, uh, I encourage you, I, a prisoner in the Lord. So that's the second time he's referred to himself as prisoner. And then look at 6.20, very end, the last chapter near the, it's the last verse of the body. He says, uh, on behalf of whom I am an ambassador in chains, an ambassador in chains, uh, which is another way to picture being a prisoner. So this letter, Philippians does the same thing. There are references in the letter to the Philippians about being a prisoner. You see the same thing in Colossians, and you see it in, in uh, Philemon also. So these are prison letters written by Paul while he's in prison. That's worth remembering as you read this. Now, I would really recommend, especially those of you who plan on coming uh, every night, and this is something you do yearly, uh, to get the most out of what we're doing, it would be of great benefit to you to read Ephesians through. Uh, I would say every night through Wednesday night. It's six chapters. It won't take you very long. I'm not telling you to take notes or get out study Bibles or anything like that. Just sit down and read, read it through in your favorite translation. Um, it, it can be, uh, that can be a, a really helpful way to sort of see the big picture and, uh, and, and feel like you're getting a grip on it. Well, as you start to read through it, if you remember the guy who's saying these things is in prison, you know, he's not like in his study, um, telling the secretary, don't let anybody bother me. I got some writing to do. Uh, if students come by, tell them I'm not available today or something like that. He, he's not on the deck of a cruise ship, you know. He's not sitting in a parade in downtown Enid, 4th of July, enjoying, you know, with uh, waving, waving, I don't know, I guess it'd be a Roman flag or something. But he's in prison. 
And, and so think about that as you hear the things that he's saying to them. Even the prayer that he prayed for them this morning. He's praying that prayer for them as a prisoner. So uh, the, this is a prison letter. Now, where he was in prison, he doesn't say. We know he was in prison uh, for one night in Philippi. We know that from the book of Acts, chapter 16. Uh, he gets arrested there, and uh, they, throw, they beat him, throw him in prison, but there's, you know, jailhouse rocks, earthquake, and, um, and he's miraculously, you know, set free. I doubt he wrote these four letters uh, in the time between he was beaten and thrown into prison and midnight when he was, when he was set free. Um, so it's probably not Philippi, but we do know that he was in prison in Caesarea for two years. That's 57 to 59 A.D. He went, he went to Jerusalem to carry an offering he'd been taking from his churches, from these Gentile, primarily Gentile churches that he had established. But he wanted, in order to establish better relations between that, that mother church in Jerusalem that was completely Jewish Christian and these Gentile Christian churches, he'd been taking an offering for several years. Well, he takes it to the, to the church in Jerusalem. That goes well. But he ends up getting arrested because... The leaders of the church at Jerusalem said, you know, Paul, you really should do something that will help show your commitment to your people, to, to Israelites, to your faith. So he went to the temple to make an offering, and when he did, there were some Gentiles with him. One, we learn in Acts nineteen twenty-one, I think, one of those people, maybe chapter twenty. But one of the people and the person that's named that he took beyond where Gentiles could go in the temple. Now, this would have been a Gentile Christian. His name was Trophimus the Ephesian. So the person that is named as the one that he was accused of taking where he wasn't supposed to, you know, there was a court of the Gentiles where Gentiles could go. But there was also a, a gate and only Israelites could go beyond that court of the Gentiles. Well, they accused Paul of taking a Gentile beyond the court of the Gentiles. And um, it's, it's interesting to me that that person that is named as the person that they made the charge was from Ephesus. He's going to later say, I don't want you to be discouraged because of my imprisonment. It's for you. I wonder how much they felt responsible that he'd been arrested because the person that was the heart of the charge against him was from the church at Ephesus. It's just an interesting connection. But he got arrested because, and I think it's a completely false charge, but they charged him, he got arrested, he spent two years in Caesarea. And um, Felix was the Roman governor and then there was a change, and Festus was the next governor. And, and when Paul could see he wasn't going to let him go, he appealed to Caesar. This leads to a trip to Rome, shipwrecked for 14 days on the way, landing on the island of Malta, where they have to wait it out for a few months, and then finally he makes it to Rome. Now, where, where am I getting all this? This is basically the ending of Acts. And he ends up then in prison in Rome under house arrest for two years, 60 to 62. So that period, 57 to 62, Paul's a prisoner in Caesarea first and then in Rome. 
early Christians and early Christian writings just sort of assumed that he wrote all four of these prison letters from his imprisonment in Rome. So I'm going to assume that. I don't have any better information than they had uh, to give you a better theory about it. It's possible that he wrote some of them from one imprisonment and others from a different imprisonment, but we just don't know. We don't have enough information. What's most important is he is in prison when he writes these four letters. And for this week, the one that matters is Ephesians. So Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God. Now, to whom is he writing? He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, let's start with the to the saints. Just look at your translation there at uh, one one. Does it say saints? What do you have? To the what? To God's people. That's a good translation. I mean, the word that's used here means, you know, the, 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 the most natural translation of it is saints. But when he says saints, he's referring to all of God's people. That's what he means by saints. Um, it's not a designation for special or super Christians. You know, you don't have to work through some three-step process to be declared a saint in Paul's thinking. You are a saint if you're part of the people of God. And you know this because the way he speaks to people in his churches. And you'd think that, well, saints, he'd probably reserve that for the, you know, the more holy, the more righteous uh, in his churches. When he writes to the church at Corinth, he calls them saints over and over again in just that opening and then the the thanksgiving section and you think well this must be a really you know upright congregation they must be really morally or ethically higher than you know some of his other churches and then you start reading and it's the opposite i mean that church is eaten up with all kinds of immorality they've got lots of problems and yet he refers to them as saints So it's not a designation for a special group of believers who are more morally superior or righteous. Sainthood, in New Testament terms, is not a moral achievement by your own effort. That's just not what it is. And and we get confused about that because there there are groups in in the world, um, the Catholic Church being one, where there is a three-step process whereby you achieve sainthood. And, and it begins with a recognition that you lived a heroically virtuous life or you're martyred. You know, the Pope can designate just because you were, you know, very virtuous, you can get through the first step. I, I, I think that you're called venerable at that point. But then the second step, you have to have a confirmed miracle. Right? Confirmed. Now, the Pope can waive all of this, but this is the process it's supposed to be. And then to move to the last step of sainthood, you have to have a second confirmed miracle. And so if if you bear that title in the Catholic tradition, saint, then you are morally superior. You've demonstrated it, at least to the Pope's satisfaction. But that's nowhere near anything you see in the New Testament. There's there's no three-step process. If you have faith in Jesus, then you're a saint. Whether you live it or not, you are a saint. Well, then what does it mean if it doesn't mean morally superior? It means that you have been dedicated and marked off for God's purposes. It means you have been marked 
that you belong to God. You are set apart for God's purposes. Holy things are throughout Scripture, even inanimate things can be holy. Like a lampstand in the temple or the bread that the priests ate. It's called holy bread. The furniture in the temple was called holy. You can speak of the holy city, Jerusalem. It doesn't have to do with morality. It has to do with something that is dedicated to God. Now that's what saints are. We, we are dedicated to God. And this is the way the New Testament's moral and ethical exhortation works. You are saints. Now live like that. Not live like this and then you can be a saint. It's God has designated you. He has called you as saints. Now go be that. And um, that's, that's a, I think, the very best motivation to live a moral, ethical life is in response to what God has already called you. So when he says to the saints, he's talking about all the believers, God's people, who are in Ephesus. Now I want you to look in your translation here where it says in Ephesus and see how many of you have a little note there and, or maybe in brackets or something there and there's a footnote that says some manuscripts do not contain the words in Ephesus or something like that. How many of you have some note there? Okay. Now, this goes back to one reality. We do not have the original letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We don't have the actual document that was sent that Tychicus carried. If we did, there wouldn't be any textual questions. Whatever is there, that's what he wrote. But because we don't have the original, what do we have? We have copies of the original. And the copies don't all agree in every place. Some manuscripts have the phrase in Ephesus. A group of manuscripts, and it's interesting that it's, a, it's like a family of manuscripts all from Alex, the Alexandria area, don't have anything there. It's just blank. Now, there's no manuscript that has any city other than Ephesus, but there is this group of manuscripts that discovered in and around Alexandria, and some of them are early manuscripts, that it just doesn't have any city name. It just says, to the saints. So what, what, what might we make of that? Well, when you start looking at the, the bigger picture of this letter, you look at the end, well, you look at the conclusion, chapter 6, verse 21. How many personal greetings do you see here? Like if you look at Romans 16, there's a whole chapter of Paul sending personal greetings to people at Rome. You look at Colossians, there's a whole list of names there that he's mentioning. Say hi to this person, say hi to that person. And he had never been to Colossa, he met the church at Colossa. He didn't start the church, he'd never been there. He'd not been to Rome when he wrote that letter to the Romans, and yet there's all these personal greetings. Had he been to Ephesus? Yeah, he helped start the church. He'd been there three years. Now, it had been a few years in the past. But isn't it surprising that to a church that he'd helped found and a church where he'd spent three years, that he wouldn't say hello to anybody? When you look at the issues that he deals with in the letter to the Ephesians, they're, they're kind of general issues, the kind of issues that you might find in any church. 
when he talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 4. He says, Christ, who ascended, gave gifts to men. And, and he lists the gifts in the church as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. I actually think pastor-teacher goes together as one. But apostles, um, prophets, evangelists, pastor-teacher. You don't have like 1 Corinthians has all these gifts of like uh, speaking in tongues, uh, interpretation of tongues, of helps, of mercy, of faith, of miracles, of healings. Those are very specific kinds of gifts that only, you know, you might have in every church or you might not have all those in every church. But how about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers? It sounds like the kinds of gifted leadership that any church that Paul might write to would have. So you don't have personal greetings. You've got a a rather general kind of addressing of a lot of issues. Maybe Paul wrote this intending it to go to the church at Ephesus. And I, and I, would, I would tend to think he actually wrote in Ephesus. But you know, there are six other churches close to Ephesus. Have you ever heard of the seven churches of Revelation? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, Thyatira, Laodicea, Philadelphia, those seven churches. There were, I've traveled to every one of those. You can go to Turkey and, and visit. Most of those have been excavated, at least to some degree. You can see a lot at places like Ephesus. But you can pretty quickly visit all those churches. I mean, you're talking about between 30, 40, 50 miles between each of those cities in like a semicircle. Doesn't it make sense that Paul intended the letter to be read in all those churches? But Ephesus would have been the, the mother church of that area. Ephesus was the largest city, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. So I could certainly see why he might send it to the church at Ephesus with the intent that Tychicus carry it to those other churches and read it to them. So I see it as a circular letter meant for not simply the church at Ephesus, but them first. And I think that helps explain maybe why some manuscripts lacked in Ephesus. Because it was going to be read in other churches too. So maybe somebody copied it in Colossa or in Laodicea and just left that blank because they weren't Ephesus. Well, it's possible. So to the saints in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. So you got sort of a parallel line here. The saints in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, Ephesus is a physical location, right? That's where they were physically, location-wise. You could GPS that. Church at Ephesus, right? But you can't put Jesus Christ in your GPS. That's not a location. But it's a nice parallel. Where are they physically in Ephesus? Where are they spiritually in Christ Jesus? And Paul loves this phrase, in Christ Jesus. He uses the phrase, in Christ, 33 times. Not in this letter, but in his letters. And the phrase, in Christ Jesus, 48 times. In Christ or in Christ Jesus. Close to 100. um, Either the phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus. So it's a way of saying where we are spiritually, where we exist. We exist in the realm of Christ, in the reign of Christ. We live our lives. We live and breathe and have our being in the, re- in the reign or in the rule within his reign or rule. We are in Christ. We live our lives under his lordship in Christ. 
And everything God has done for us, he has done for us in Christ. So it's sort of a way of marking us off spiritually. As opposed to saying, you are in Enid. See, you are saints in Enid here tonight on January the 15th. But you're also faithful uh, in Christ Jesus. So it's a nice balance there. And then, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is his favorite little blessing at the end of the opening, grace and peace. So grace, um, I don't know, probably some kind of a cradle roll, I may have learned this. Uh, RAs, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, I don't know. But in the uh, 1970s in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, somehow they were teaching kids that grace is unmerited favor. I'm sure I knew that, those, that line before I knew what unmerited or favor really meant. But here I am now, almost 58, um, with a whole lot of schooling. <laughs> and I still think that's a pretty good definition of grace. Unmerited favor. Specifically, directed towards salvation and, and all of its implications for us. He really likes to talk about grace. And he probably actually uses the term grace more than you realize because a lot of times English translations will use other words to translate this Greek word charis. Like favor sometimes or benefit, but it's, it's grace. And he, he actually uses grace. The term charis, the Greek word charis. So if your name's Carissa or something like that, you know, it's a good name. It means grace. 95 times in 13 letters. He uses it 12 times in Ephesians, so he likes it here. He's going to end it with grace. We'll see that on Wednesday night. And then peace. Uh, this is like the Greek version of the Hebrew shalom. And it's like just... A wish for well-being in every area of one's life. And uh, I'll just throw out some Greek words for you tonight. It's a reine. So we, uh, if you, if you, anybody ever known someone named Irene? Or you know the term uh, irenic to speak of somebody who's peaceable, a peaceful person? Well, if your name's Irene, you're named for the Greek word for peace. Right? So if you had two daughters, kimes, now has two daughters. If I could have got here a few years ago, if I could have got to you, you could have had Carissa and Irene, grace and peace. Wouldn't that, if you, if you got two more, you got to think about it, kind of. Um, I, I often joked about that. There's about seven of these virtues that Paul likes to talk about, and, and they're, I think they're all feminine nouns, and it would be nice if you had that many daughters. You could just name them after all these virtues, but there are some problems um, faith, the Greek word for that is pistis. <laughs> so maybe just go with faith uh, on that one. But, th- but that's not here. Um, this is grace and peace, so that- that's good. Carissa and Irene, uh, grace and peace. It, I, I said that uh, at Quail Springs, I think, last week, and some- somebody came up afterwards and said, can you write that down for me And in, in Greek? And I, I said, I will, and why? And uh, they said, well, I was thinking about maybe getting a tattoo. <laughs> well, I'm, just don't tell your mama it was my idea. 
Um, yeah, so, so that's the opening. Now let's move into the three, uh, beginning at verse 3 through 14. So here is the praise and prayer section. We've already done the prayer, so let's talk about the praise. So it begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So he's not named any of the spiritual blessings yet, but here's why he wants to give praise to God. Here's why he wants to say, bless God. Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, right? So any spiritual blessing we have, it's in Christ. It is because of Christ. It's through Christ's work. There would be no spiritual blessing outside of Christ. So that any blessing that God gives to us is going to be in Christ. But he also adds, in the heavenlies. Do you see that? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So how many of you have in heaven? Do you, do you say in heavenly places? Okay, I like that better. Heaven would not be a good translation here. Uh, I might just say in the heavenlies. Paul's going to use that term uh, five or six times in Ephesians. Um, and when he does, we'll, I'll point it out when we get to it. I don't want to take time to read them all here. But I don't think he's thinking location, like Ephesus. That's a location. I don't think he's thinking location when he says in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places. I think he's thinking that it's something that is spiritual and it's something that is eternal more than at thinking about a particular location. He's going to say, you remember this morning in verse 20 when he says God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places. So it sounds like, well, maybe it's talking about like the throne room. It's, it's, it's that place in heaven. But look at chapter 6. I said I wouldn't do this, but I'm not going to read all of them though. Look at chapter 6 verse 12. This is the put on the full armor of God section. He says, um, For our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. He uses that same phrase. Now, does it say heavenly places there? So now, that doesn't sound like that's like in heaven, where you'd have all these evil spiritual forces at work, right? So it sounds like when he says in the heavenlies, he's thinking spiritual rather than material. Something that's invisible presently rather than something that's visible presently, rather than a physical location. That's the only way I can make sense out of all of his uses of in the heavenlies. So this is what he wants to thank. He wants to give thanks to God, praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for all these spiritual blessings that he's given us. Now, what are they? If you look at that outline, so praise for every spiritual blessing. A, praise to God for his gracious election. And he says here at verse 4, because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in order that we might be holy and blameless before him. So this is the first spiritual blessing. It is that he chose us. 
Now, that's the language of election. And I know it makes us just slightly nervous to talk about election uh, because pretty quickly you move from election to things like predestination. Uh, you might get into a conversation about Calvinism or something like that, and, um, and it, it can be a bit contentious. What I've discovered, what I know in Paul, is when Paul talks about election, it always leads him to praise, not argument. Um, it never ends that way for him. It, it's always a source of praise to God. So that God chose us, what, what are we going to say that means? How are we going to handle this language? And then look at uh, verse 5. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. There's the language of predestination. Look at verse 11 in chapter 1. In whom also we were appointed heirs, uh, having been predestined according to the purpose of the one who works all things according to the plan which flows from his will. I mean, you, you have all this language of God's purpose, God's pre-planning, God chose us before the foundation of the world. And the worst thing you can do is just to avoid it. Because if you do, you miss a vitally important New Testament doctrine and something that could, should lead us to give praise. So what does it mean to say that God chose us? Well, let's think about the whole of Scripture. How about in the Old Testament? Did God choose anybody in the Old Testament? He chose a whole nation, right? Israel were his cho was his chosen people. That becomes the model for God's election. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were the most numerous people? Because they were the most holy people? Because they were nice, friendly, treated each other well? Because of the physical load? No. Just, he just chose them because he chose them. Here like Deuteronomy 4.37. Because he loved your fathers, he chose their descendants after them and brought you up out of Egypt by his presence and power to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you in and give you the land as an inheritance as is now taking place. But it's the opening there. Deuteronomy 4.37. Because he loved your fathers, he chose their descendants. Deuteronomy 7. Just a couple chapters later, verses 6. Starting at verse 6. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you. Not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's the language of election. He chose you. Now, in this passage, this same election is applied to the Christians at Ephesus. With the designation, he chose us in him, that is, in Christ. Again, all the spiritual blessings are in Christ. Choosing us is in Christ. Every good thing God has done for us is in Christ, so I'm not surprised by that. But how about before the foundation of the world? So when it gets right down to it, most people are going to think of God choosing us before the foundation of the world. They're going to think about God's election in one of two ways. 
And the first would be that God just knows things in advance. And that's the extent of God's foreknowledge, and that's what it means he chose us before the foundation of the world. Somehow it's related to his knowledge about who would believe. That's one option. A second option would be that his choice is more by his will, by his predetermination. And that breaks down in a lot of different categories. It gets way more complicated than that. But that's, that's kind of a nice way to think about it. So I'm asking the question, is it sufficient to say God's foreknowledge is simply knowing things before they happen? So let's think about, uh, look at 1 Peter. Just thinking about some other places where we have this language. So look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, we, we get a little bit of this. At 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect or chosen uh, refugees or, or aliens. Um, so you get it there, but you really get an interesting uh, later in chapter 1, starting at about verse 18. You there? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, because you know... That you were redeemed, not by perishable things like silver or gold, from your feudal lifestyle that you inherited from your fathers, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish. Now when he mentions Christ, he says, who was foreknown or chosen Before the foundation of the world. There's that same phrase. Before the foundation of the world. Same phrase you have back here at at Ephesians 1.4. Before the foundation of the world. So here's my question. Is Peter saying that God knew in advance that Jesus was going to be the one? And that's the extent of what that means. Or is there more of God's actual plan and determination in Jesus being the one uh, who would redeem us. Is it more just him knowing in advance, or is there more of his determination and will? Acts 2.23 is talking about the death of Jesus, and I'll just read it to you. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, By nailing him to the cross. Now there's a reference to the death of Jesus. And it uses not just foreknowledge. But God's deliberate plan. So for me it's not enough. When you're talking about God chose us before the foundation of the world. To just say well God knew in advance that you and I were going to believe. There's something more of God's determination and will in election. Now, at about that point, uh, I'll often, uh, somebody will write, Dr. Kelly's a Calvinist. Um, and I think I've, told, I've got a very good friend at Quail Springs. When I was interim there um, a few years ago, um, we did first, that was the year First Peter was the January Bible study. And I started in January, so I just did First Peter for about six months there instead of doing a week-long January Bible study. Well... The first sermon from First Peter was Paul, apostle of Christ, or, or was Peter, apostle, and to the elect refugees. So I talked about election there. 
And I said some of the same things I just said. I didn't think I necessarily sounded like a Calvinist. That wasn't my intention. I wasn't even really thinking about that. But a really good friend of mine, somebody who's been a really good friend of mine uh, over the years, makes a beeline to me after it, very troubled that I'm a Calvinist. And I said to him, well, I don't consider myself a Calvinist. I mean, I wouldn't take it as, you know, you'd slap me in the face. I mean, I wouldn't take it as a put down, but I just don't consider myself. I've never put myself in that category. But you said, but, but you said it was God's determination and will in election. And I said, yes, <laughs> but I don't consider myself a Calvinist. The way I think about it, and, and there's, you've got to give people room to have differences of opinion on this. This shouldn't be a break of fellowship on, on this particular issue. But my own belief about it is that there is God's determination and will in his choice of us. And that then opens up the possibility for me to choose God. I otherwise would never choose God. I would choose my own way every time because I'm fallen and depraved. And I'm not just sick. I'm dead spiritually before I become a believer. So his election opens up the possibility for me to believe, but I still can reject uh, that choice of me. And that's my difference, yeah. So I don't want to go any further with that. We'll move, we'll move right along. It's all, we're almost out of time anyway. What time are we supposed to stop, Jonathan? <laughs> that means I'm out of time. Um, <laughs> I think God is predetermined that we go all the way through verse 14 tonight, but <laughs> no. Nah, um, now he's, then he says in, in the latter part of verse four, in love, having determined or appointed us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself. Now he, he brings adoption in as he talks about his choice of us. We were chosen to be God's children. So what does that tell you? And Paul likes this adoption. He, he does it in Romans 8. He does it in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time had come, God, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, bo uh, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those under the law, in order that we might receive adoption to sonship, so that we might cry, Abba, Father. I mean, he likes this adoption language. And, and it, it's prominent here. So, so what does that tell us? It says that, one, we were spiritual orphans. That's who we were. We were without God in the world, and without God in the world, you don't have a father, not a spiritual father. At that point, if you do have a father, his name is Adam. You are in Adam, and you are destined for destruction. You're without God in the world. You're a spiritual orphan. And... Um, I often, you know, we, we have a Baptist Homes for Children. I think there's some good organizations that try to take care of children who might not have a family. But have you ever thought about all the, all the, how, how, how terrible it would be to not have a people, to not have a family, and maybe to be part of a structure where you're hoping that someone might want to adopt you into their family. But knowing that every day that passes, your chances of being adopted are shrinking. And then maybe you make it to 18, still in, in whatever system you're in. 
And so you're out of the system then, but you still don't have that family or support group. I mean, just to think of all the consequences of not being part of a family. That's who we were spiritually. We were spiritual orphans. But now, because God chose us in Christ, we are part of God's family. We've been adopted into God's family. And it's not just Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians too. There's only one natural born son of God. His name was Jesus. Everybody else is adopted into God's family. And so God has brought us together as we are brothers and sisters when we sit down at God's table. It's an amazing reality of who we are. And that really should define us. And if you think about how, what that would impact, how it would impact your community, if we really lived like that, if we really thought about our adoption into God's family as thicker than blood, you know, even more important than maybe biology. I love my family, so I'm, I'm not going to push that too far, but I know we identify ourselves by a lot of other kinds of um, markers apart from our family. I mean, we identify ourselves as, you know, OU, OSU, or Kentucky. We often identify that way. We do it by corporate you know, maybe the company you work for, uh, we, do it, we do it in all kinds of ways. And, and, and we often find more connection with people who agree with us, maybe politically, or they agree with us because they're alums of the same place we went to school, or because they work at the same company we work for, than we do in our brother and sisterhood in Christ. This is the family of God. And, and that ought to be our primary identity marker over all those other things. And think of what that would mean for the community if they saw a church that believed this family of God was a real, was a reality. And we cared for each other like you would a, bro, a, a blood brother or sister. We, we sought to meet one another's needs as much as you would a blood relative. I think these are all implications of this, our adoption into God's family. And, and there's this other part, and, and it, for those of us who might come from a background that's a little bit rougher, um, I think there's also an aspect of it that by the Spirit, when you're adopted into God's family, you undergo some sort of gene therapy that frees you up from enslavement to your past or your family's past. You know, there are lots of things that are passed on to to sons and daughters and then grandchildren and then on down the line that, that can be very negative. I mean, you know, the most obvious things like alcoholism. You know, that when you look at the the percentages of somebody becoming an alcoholic if their father was an alcoholic, it's ridiculously high. And I'm convinced that just bad decision-making is almost genetic. It just seems like there are just some families that just, it just seem to find a way to make bad decisions. And in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, I'm not bound to all of those chains that might be part of my past. 
And, and it, it means a lot to me because my dad was an alcoholic for a, a better part of my childhood. I was 12 years old when he, he stopped drinking. And uh, he was, he was going to have to stop or he was going to die. And he stopped. He had an amazing willpower. He stopped drinking. It was 1977. And uh, he was in his 40s. And he kept running around with the same friends, went to the same places, didn't do AA, but he never drank another drop. <laughs> he became the driver for his, for his drinking friends, but he never drank again. And uh, he ended up, he actually died uh, December the 5th, uh, just in this past December. But the, the, he did, there were a number of things that were part of his life that could have easily been part of my life. And I don't take any credit for not drinking and not doing some of the other things he did. I, I feel like, honestly, God set me free from some of those things that I might otherwise have fallen into by the power of the Spirit. Because I was adopted into God's family. And by the power of the Spirit, we, we are set free from things that we otherwise might be bound to. And then finally, we have this inheritance. And if you look at verse 11 in Ephesians 1, in whom we were appointed heirs. And then look at verse 14, talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, who is the down payment uh, or the pledge or the guarantee or even the engagement ring? This word is the current, modern, in modern Greek, this is the word for engagement ring. Uh, which is the, I'll say, engagement ring of our inheritance. When God gives us his spirit, it is the promise of more to come. That he's not finished yet. That he's working out a process in us that will end when, when we are raised from the dead and we receive everything and are everything that God has made us to be. The Holy Spirit is that promise, that guarantee, that down payment, like, like an engagement ring. I had one class this past fall where four different students in there got engaged in the fall. That was a pretty good-sized class, about 35, but four of them got engaged in the fall. Usually that's a spring thing, but four in the fall. So I always, somebody will either tell me or I'll see it on social media or something, and I'll make a big deal about it in class. And if I have the female, and in two of those cases, the, the girl was in my class, I'll say, oh, let's see that ring. So, I mean, every time, man, they're always so proud to show me the ring, and I'll make a big deal out of it, you know. I've yet to, to have any experience with a situation where I said, let me see that ring. And she said, oh, he didn't give me a ring. He just gave me his word. He just promised that we were going to get married. You know... You were, you know, a guy's word's good, but I mean, you need something a little more tangible, don't you? <laughs> That's the promise of more to come uh, on a girl's finger when uh, the young man has uh, proposed marriage. It's the promise there's more to come. That's how the Holy Spirit functions with respect to our inheritance. We were spiritual orphans, we've been made now sons and daughters of God. And our inheritance is from him, and everything belongs to him. And we are now co-heirs with Christ. My 
should help you sleep better tonight. <laughs> well, I think probably that's uh, the end of our time. I think the Spirit's telling me that's time. You, you kind of get the feeling when people are like saying, okay, I've had enough of you tonight. <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll pick back up here tomorrow night. Um, Jonathan, do I, you want to say something else? Do you want me to finish out? Six thirty tomorrow night. Are there snacks or anything like that before? Cookies and coffee. Cookies and coffee. So, what time will people start mingling? Would you guess if it's a six, like six? Six to six fifteen. Okay. All right. So, get here six six fifteen. Eat some cookies and coffee, and uh, six thirty we'll get started. So, let me let me ask a, a blessing on you. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. All right, I'll see you tomorrow night.